The Zeb Wells written run on New Mutants, the 2009-2011 volume, is definitely an underrated gem of the era. Bringing the Xavier School students of the 1980s Chris Claremont X-Men into the 2010s as fully formed young adults graduating to X-Men status. Through connections to X-Men history and lore, Wells and company weave in developments for Legion Inferno in the realm of Limbo, all concepts and characters that have plenty of resonance in the X-Men comics of 2020. Today I'll answer, what makes Wells run on New Mutants special? How do the comics tie into the Dawn of X, especially the Wells-written Hellions? How the conclusion of the run ties into a wild theory I have about the threat of a coming demonic cosmic hell? Welcome to Kraken Krakoa number 53, Zeb Wells' New Mutants, and uh, a whole weird Demon Alliance theory that I've got going on. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. If you like the CBH YouTube channel or podcast, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing. Links to CBH channels and Patreon support are included in the show notes. You can find full X-Men and comic book reading orders on ComicBookHerald.com as well. Spoilers for discussed comics may follow. Covering issues number 1 to 11 and 13 to 21 with a gamut of artists including Leonard Kirk, Paul Davidson, Diogenes Neves, and some excellent Adam Kubert covers, the 2009 New Mutants launches at the tail end of Marvel's Dark Reign and the X-Men Utopia era, tying into Necrotia and Second Coming throughout the run. Importantly, New Mutants by Wells returns to the classic roster established during the Claremont, Louis Simonson, Bill Sienkiewicz, Bob McCloud, and Art Adams' heydays, among many other talented creators. The players are Cannonball, Sunspot, Mirage, Karma, Wolfsbane, Magic, Warlock, and Cypher. Overall, Wells' run is about the team growing up, finally making the true transition from New Mutants to X-Men. For my money, it's not quite as strong as the Mike Carey X-Men run I just covered on the last episode of Kraken Krakoa, but it's well worth a read, especially if you're familiar with the original volume of New Mutants and the 1989 Inferno event crossover. Likewise, given Wells' continued interest in Inferno-era threads in the Dawn of X's Hellions No. 1, it's fun to connect the dots. The run opens with an engrossing Return of Legion story, although even here it's important to note seeds are building to the fall and rise in the New Mutants, the arc that will conclude the run. Legion reemerges with Sean trapped in his mind, with rampaging personalities who don't want the New Mutant fixers to bottle them up again. The use of Legion's Jack Wayne personality, the gruff dirtbag man's man, and his fixation on Warlock, Doug, Rain, and Danny is a nice callback to Claremont and Sienkiewicz's debut of Legion in New Mutants number 26-28. Essentially, the number of personalities vying for dominance in David Haller's psyche has now increased Legionfold, a development that would continue in the pages of X-Men Legacy under both the pens of Mike Carey and Cy Spurrier. Nonetheless, the seasoned New Mutants do find a way to defeat the Omega-level Legion, a fact Bobby is all too happy to announce to Rogue repeatedly in the hopes of impressing her. With Ileana Rasputin Soulsword dealing decapitating desecration to David Haller's mind, and the team ultimately subduing him enough to bring him back to Utopia. It's a little detail with surprising significance in the Dawn of X, but I'll also note that the doll in Legion's mind that allows personalities access to the real world is named Moira. Legion's connection to Moira X will of course resurface in the upcoming Age of X crossover, as discussed in the recent Mike Carey X-Men dive, and I continue to think it will be meaningful in the Krakoa era of X-Men. Again, at this point, if I met someone named Moira in real life, I'd assume they knew what was to come in the Dawn of X, and restraining orders would assuredly follow. It's a problem. I'm working on it. Although the core cast all mostly get their time in the sun, Warlock is probably the most underserved alongside Wolfsbane, but isn't that always the case? Well centers his run on Ileana Rasputin, Sam Guthrie, and perhaps most surprisingly, a depowered via decimation Danny Moonstar. Mirage is cool as hell throughout this run, tough as nails and chomping at the bit for action among her teammates even without her mutant abilities. Of course, her lack of mutant powers leads her to turn to Hela, yes, Thor's Hela, to restore a version of her Valkyrie abilities, leading to a really great siege tie-in written by Kieran Gillen where Danny is the Valkyrie of Death. 
In addition to just being a good comic, New Mutants number 11 has some nice X of Swords, or Ten of Swords, tie-in potential, with Danny wielding a magic Death Valkyrie blade. If for no other reason, I hope Danny has a major role so I can utter the phrase Death Valkyrie blade again and again. And no, Hella residing in Las Vegas, Club Inferno, did not escape my notice. Much like X-Men Legacy, Wells' own vision for New Mutants is notably interrupted during Second Coming, when the title simply fun- functions as the next chapter in that quite good mega-crossover. Wells has an easier time making the Necrotia tie-ins his own, employing some truly exciting interpretations of the resurrected Doug Ramsey's power set, such as Doug's ability to interpret body language to reveal his former teammate's true meaning in conversation with Professor X, or his developing battle prowess as he learns the language of violence. Necrotia also affords Wells the opportunity to write a resurrected original Hellions lineup, a small bit of trivia as well as in Segovia's Dawn of X Hellions launches. They're essentially just Selene's pawns trying to return Doug Ramsey to their master, but nonetheless, Hellions they be. A final observation before the real meat of the story. There's a standalone issue in between crossovers and tie-ins, New Mutants number 10, in which Scott Summers reveals to Emma Frost that he's seeking the next mutant leader. It's a very good single issue with the assumption that Sam Guthrie and all his X-Force training makes the right next leader, clearly inverted when Danny Moonstar and Sean clearly lead the team's victory instead. Here's the question. Is this even relevant in the Krakoa era? Do people still age and die? Or do they resurrect in younger bodies? Does training a next generation matter when everyone can just be resurrected into the body of their choice? I hadn't really paused to consider this before since the ongoing concern is the unnatural end of mutant lives on Krakoa, but I really don't know the answer. The primary evidence I've seen so far would be Wolverine aging throughout Moira's lifelines and Powers of Ten, but those are situations where Krakoa has been decimated, and again, we don't actually know that resurrection protocols were even in place in those lifelines. Although there are multiple stages to Wells' run on New Mutants, the big picture story is building to a timey-wimey inferno reckoning right from the very first issue. Ileana Rasputin comes to the New Mutants from a future, having witnessed the death of the team, remaining scant on the details until the full-fledged army from Limbo and their allied Inferno babies come to Earth to unleash, well, hell on Earth. Emma Frost is likely the most skeptical of Ileana's central role in the unit's success, as she tells Scott the rest of the X-Men are too overwhelmed with guilt over losing Ileana to Belasco years ago and allowing her to become the dark child absent of Ileana's childlike soul. There's a lot of mystery and questionable motivations with this Ileana, and for generally fair reasons. I'm actually publishing a magic reading order on Comic Book Herald this week. Uh, the week the video will be released that I'd recommend for those devoted readers, but her road to 2009's New Mutants includes stints in New X-Men, the post-Morrison years, and X-Infernus, where she's very much at odds with the X-Men, particularly Pixie, and her allegiance to Limbo, where she's the on-again, off-again demonic overlord, is very much the concern to the likes of Emma Frost. The Dark Child presence, the influence of Limbo's one-time demon ruler Blasco and the corruption of Ileana's soul, is very much present in this pirated copy of Magic, as Warlock puts it. On a simpler level too, Magic's power set is immense, ruling realms of demons, wielding the magical soul sword, and traveling back through time and space to confront the impending attack on the New Mutants. If you're a mutant, and Ileana doesn't scare you, she probably should. Likewise, she's an incredible ally to mutant kind. It's far from a perfect example, but mutants did establish safe haven in Limbo, through Ileana in the post-Secret Wars uh, pre-House of X years. What Ileana fails to mention, at least initially, is that the United States military has inhabited Limbo and is both seeking Ileana's violent ends and a means to get justice for their time trapped in Limbo. We'll touch on this more shortly, but this version of Limbo in the Marvel Universe, yes, there's more than one, does not adhere to Earth's rules of time and space. As a result, years in Limbo could mean only months or days back on Earth. So we'll learn these soldiers have been stranded in this hellscape for years while a more limited time passed on Earth. 
Intriguingly, the desire to send military into Limbo to better understand it and weapons applications uh, that they may use comes out of the wake of the Inferno event, with a governmental awareness that mutant kind, in some capacity, set off the events that opened a portal to hell right in the middle of Times Square. The wildest continuity connection and the way Wells fully integrates his run with an event that happened 20 years prior, in publication years at least, there's a note in the previous section of comics that make it sound like it's four years of Marvel time, which is wild, the evolution of the Inferno Babies, which, as we'll see, are the reason the U.S. military is in limbo in the first place. I'm not going to do a full Inferno deep dive, yet, when the My Marvel This Year Reading Club gets there in 1989, all bets are off, but here's the completely off-the-chain background. Thirteen mutant babies were kidnapped and used by the demon Naster to keep open a portal between Limbo and Earth. The details are even wilder, like the fact that there's thirteen because the babies form the points of an inverted pentagram, but at the end of the day, these babies were rescued by the new mutants and ultimately turned over to the U.S. government for safekeeping. Turns out safekeeping also meant experimenting on and turning the babies into the government's own mutant weapons. It's a horrendous fate for these aggressively mistreated children, but certainly goes a long way to explaining their own collective desire for revenge on, well, just about anything, but especially the mutants who put them in the situation. Realistically, had the new Hellions' own nanny and orphan maker actually obtained the children back in the pages of X-Factor, which they were trying to do, the Inferno Babies would have had a better upbringing. Considering Zeb Wells also wrote the Amazing Spider-Man story Shed, in which the lizard eats his own son, few at Marvel can quite lay claim to his crown for most uncomfortably violent moments that happen to kids in otherwise quite good comics award. Congratulations, Zeb. After the left to die, the military's ultimate goal is effectively revenge and domination of the demon hordes of Limbo. And if they can't achieve that through any other means, the plan is to release the Elder Gods using the Bloodstone Amulet. This goes as badly for General Ulysses as you'd expect. He has no control over the unleashed Elder Gods and is torn apart. But nonetheless, the extra-dimensional beings are released and make way for Earth, and the new mutants are unable to stop them. Now, the Elder Gods' motivation is a nice callback to where Magic's journey started, following Uncanny X-Men number 160 in the four-issue limited miniseries Magic from 1983 to 1984. Belasco's ultimate goal in corrupting Ileana is to set these forces free and set them upon Earth. He creates the Beatrix Medallion, or the Bloodstone Amulet, to do so, with the intent that Ileana would function as the gate through which the Elder Gods would enter the universe. In Magic, Ileana ultimately creates her Soul Sword and defeats Belasco before he can succeed. But releasing the Elder Gods has remained a threat ever since, something that was also explored in X Infernus, and that I'm going to continue to explore here in this very episode of Kraken Krakoa. What does it mean to have these extra-dimensional extra beings that are a constant threat to be unleashed on mutant kind? This will, of course, play a major role in the fall and rise of the new mutants. In take two of Ileana's last stand with the X-Men against the Elder God, she's able to turn the tide when Sean finds the real Legion locked away inside David Haller's mind and his full reality-altering power set is utilized against the monstrous beings. This is a fairly incredible job by Wells and company of unexpe unexpectedly connecting nearly every beat from the 21 issues of New Mutants into one satisfying conclusion. As Ileana tells the Elder Gods, Today, you understand that we are not human. We are superior. Wiping out the Elder Gods via Legion's reality-warping abilities, Warlock refers to it as hacking reality, has a finality to it for the purposes of the run, but given Legion's unpredictability and the presence of extra-dimensional beings that we don't know a lot about, I'm not so convinced they're gone for good. At the same time, I've been noticing a recurring presence of Lovecraftian Cthulhu horror at the edges of X-Men comics, and am beginning to believe that the impending Inferno 2.0 will feature a coalescence of extra-dimensional entities that threaten mutant kind and their world. Now, consider for a moment that Inferno already unleashed the demonic realm of Limbo to Earth. Repeating the same threat feels tired, and 30 plus years behind the times. 
It would make more sense to me that the demon hordes would this time gather in an extra-dimensional location and combine forces to conquer the inhabited planet they've long sought. It's an idea not dissimilar from the Masters of Evil or Brian Michael Bendis' Council of Cosmic Powers from the pages of Guardians of the Galaxy, but applied to all manner of kaiju, Cthulhu, wandering nightmares that we know exist in the Marvel Universe. Who are these extra-dimensional forces? Well, let's flip through a few options. The many-angled ones from the Cosmic Cancerverse. I theorized in my Kraken Krakoa about Vulcan that these beings are still very much in play in the life of the Third Summers Brothers. He may well be an agent of theirs, if uh, my theory pans out. And last I checked, they were being held at bay in the negative zone by a, for the moment, heroic sentry. That happened, I believe, in the event, um, oh, the Annihilation sequel Marvel did in December 2019. The second, the Monsters of Nowhere, in Mike Carey's X-Men Legacy. M-Plate's house in literal nowhere is neighbored by these worm-like beings even the soul-sucking M-Plate fears, and he is seemingly trapped by, at least in the pages of Legacy. We also have Moradin, Wizard of the Fifth Cosmos. Taking a page out of Al Ewing's New Avengers, Moradin would be an excellent addition, tying in Kree, Skrulls, and various cosmic implications. Plus, he's a wizard and he looks like a giant space octopus with a pentagram in between his eyes. That's an amazing design. And finally, for the time being, the forces of Shumagarath in the pages of Wolverine First Class, it's revealed that Magneto's Island M, adorned with sweet octopus statues as far as the eye can see, was actually a prison for Quagath, a creation of Shumagarath who rebelled against his master, Marvel's greatest of the old ones. Astonishingly, Quagath has most recently reemerged in the pages of The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, I believe issue number 7 of the second volume for those Quagath heads out there. While most commonly an enemy of Doctor Strange, and believe it or not Conan the Barbarian, Shumagaroth is weirdly on the edges of this slice of Marvel history, and the most likely face of the Demon Alliance that could launch Inferno 2.0. I could have this wrong because I let my certification in Demonic History slip this year, but I also believe Shumagaroth, a great old one, is one of the many angled ones. I think these things are one in the same, or at least very similar, on a cosmic scale. There are two aspects of Shumagaroth's history that blow my mind with connections to Hickman's X-Men. The first is that the Dark Entity was brought to Earth by Doctor Strange under the influence of the Black Order's Ebony Maw during Hickman's 2013 Infinity Event. He brags about drinking bad milk, which is actually either the best or the worst MC boast. I can't totally decide. The second is way flippin' weirder. Kulingath is a sorcerer from Conan the Barbarian's Hyborian Age, at one time holding the title Sorcerer Supreme and seeking the power of Shumagarath. Well, Gath was transported to, transported to present-day Marvel via mystical means in the pages of Uncanny X-Men, around 188 to issue 191, which also happened to coincide with the debut of Nimrod in X-Men comics. Gath more or less murderizes all Marvel's finest heroes before Doctor Strange and Magic combine forces to create a divergent timeline in which Nimrod threatens the X-Men yet again. That's kind of a byproduct. So what if there's a timeline out there where Gath ascended and ushered in an era of worship for Shuma Garath? Anytime. You're talking about divergent timelines messing with the time stream, and the fact that we have magic doing this in conjunction with Doctor Strange? There are all sorts of wild connections here that could be played with. Also, I have to give a shout out here while we're talking Doctor Strange and magic. Check out What If Magic Became Sorcerer Supreme, written by Leigh Williams on Marvel Unlimited. Good issue. The visions Myra puts in Magneto's head during House and Powers of Ten also suggests some possible textual evidence of this demonic threat, with the bottom right image showing Magneto versus an unnamed monstrous visage. My read on this is still some sort of Magneto versus Krakoa battle, I, I think that looks like Krakoa to me, but it could easily be one of the extra-dimensional beings as well. What if this sort of battle, Inferno 2.0, has happened before? 
Which brings us to Arako and the Forest Horsemen of Apocalypse. Throughout much of the discussion of Arako, it has felt like a realm akin to Limbo, which always left me with the question why Apocalypse is going to such lengths to reach it. Couldn't he just DM Miliana for a ride? But if the extra-dimensional forces that Apocalypse once stood in the gap to defeat are being held at bay in a realm beyond Limbo, a la the Elder Gods, it would make more sense why he's so interested in magic in the pages of Excalibur as he means to access that place. Likewise, there's also the question from Cable Number 1 about where Old Man Cable is trapped. Is it simply Limbo? Or is it the same realm of extra-dimensional beings and summoners? I'm also really curious what events led Cable to rooting out legions of demons on Earth. Is this something we've seen before in X-History? Unless it's just him time-traveling back to the original Inferno, but that seems too obvious and complicated. Or is this a new revelation altogether? Either way, his suspicion that the demons are attempting to replicate the old spell that caused Earth to nearly burn in an inferno of hellfire, it fits my theory. So, a couple questions I have coming out of all this, rereading The New Mutants Run by Zeb Wells and, and theorizing here on this insane Cthulhu horror theory. Where are the inferno mutant babies now? <laughs> they seemingly die, I think most of them, at the end of the New Mutants run, but we live in an era of Krakoa and resurrection protocols. The Inferno Mutant Babies could be brought back. If it's going to happen, uh, 10 out of 10 times, I think it happens in Hellions, written by Zeb Wells. I'll be surprised if we don't see them again. Plus, there's an open question now about, if this comes to fruition, where do supernatural forces fit in the hierarchy of the X-Men's mutant versus man versus machine struggle? Right? It's a three-way struggle. What happens when you have this fourth element of magic and the supernatural? All right, next time, what would you like to see covered? I have the following topics queued up for coverage. The indie titles of Jonathan Hickman. The curious case of X-Man Nate Gray. And six months later, what happened between Uncanny X-Men, Age of X, and House of X? I am very much looking forward to your notes and comments, and uh, I've been appreciating everybody who's been putting in some input into what I should cover next. Shout out to our patrons over on patreon.com slash for making this content on the website and YouTube and podcast all possible. I'd like to thank our mysterious benefactor tier in particular by name. Thank you, Eric Hodges, Jeff Zacharias, Ron Paul Kirkley, Jesse W., Slaytron, Robert Mickelson, Professor Pride, and Steve Brennan for your generous support. I'm Dave Busing. You can find my work at Compacherald online. You can go to compacherald.com for all the writing. We're publishing new great stuff just about daily. And, of course, look for the podcast, Best Comics Ever, and My Marvelous Year. If you want to read along with us, we are in the year 1984, heading into 1985 in the year-by-year -year Marvel Reading Club, My Marvelous Year. And that means we're reading a whole lot of good New Mutants and Uncanny X-Men, which will give you a lot of ideas and theories if you're interested in connecting those dots to X-Men history, which I like to do here on Crack and Krakoa. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, I definitely want to hear your comments and thoughts and theories in the notes. I also uh, definitely want to hear what you are looking for me to cover next. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And as always, enjoy the comics. Thank you.